Today our scripture reading comes from 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16 through chapter 2 verse 22. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven, while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved ways, and the way of truth will be maligned because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories, their condemnation pronounced long ago is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment, and if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly, and if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. Bold, arrogant people, they are not afraid to slander the glorious ones. However, angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a slanderous charge against them before the Lord. But these people, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, slander what they do not understand. And in their destruction, they too will be destroyed. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight. They are spots and blemishes, delighting in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of the adultery that never stop looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed. 
children under a curse. They have gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of wickedness but received a rebuke for his lawlessness. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water, mists driven by a storm. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them, for by uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. For if, having escaped the world's impurity, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things and defeated. The last state is worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after knowing it, to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a washed sow returns to wallowing in the mud. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Len, for reading that. This passage doesn't exactly scream Merry Christmas. <laughs> There's a lot here. There's destruction, it, uh, utter darkness, judgment, debauchery, vomit, mud. These are not the themes we normally associate with Advent and Christmas. There's no Advent wreath that I know of that has a destruction candle, right? You know, a vomit candle. <laughs> but as we just said, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> we go. <laughs> what are we thanking God for here? Why are we looking at this jarring passage during Advent? As I shared last week, Advent is a season to remember that the Bible teaches two Advents or two comings of Jesus Christ. Christianity says we, we really can only make sense of life. We can only live the life we are called to live and made to live if we remember that now we live in between these two Advents. This is essential. Thinking about the first coming of Jesus Christ into the world as a baby in a manger, surrounded by sheep and shepherds and the light of a star, that rightly uh, brings us a sense of comfort and peace and joy and calm. But the world and our lives are not always and only marked by comfort and peace. All is calm, all is bright. Reality is not like that. Instead, it often feels like we're living in a dark place, as Peter describes in verse 19. The world around us 
As we think about our world now, there, there's war. As we talked about last week, wars upon wars. There's cultural and political conflict that isn't getting any better. It just seems like it's getting worse. Or the world within us. We've got our inner world of grief and confusion and depression. Our own moral and spiritual failings that we have to deal with. All this can feel more difficult and more hard, more difficult, deep, deeply dark, even more so during the holiday season. And after last week's message where we started talking about this, a number of people shared with me, they've just been feeling this. They've been feeling these things. And it is harder during this season. So that's why this year we're looking at this letter with this difficult passage that we just heard read. The Apostle Peter, the leader of the early church, one of Jesus' closest disciples, wrote this letter as his last and final message to the church. He says that in verses 12 through 15. And his main theme... If it's not the main theme, it is one of the main themes in this letter. I think it's the main theme that he says, do not lose sight of the second advent of Jesus Christ. It's your lamp shining in a dark place. And so this advent, we're asking, how so? How does that work? Last week, we talked about what to do in a dark place. This week, we're going to continue along that theme and talk about how to live in a dark place. How does this jarring passage we just read, we're definitely not going to explain it all. I'm not going to have time to go through all the details or answer it all, even if I could. But how does this jarring passage show us how to live when things are dark around us and inside of us? This This passage that we just read, in my opinion, is one of the most difficult, maybe one of the most disturbing passages in the Bible, because there's so much we go, I don't understand what's what's happening here. And this week was the first time in my life that I spent any real time studying this. And what I came to realize about it which is true of any passage in the Bible, but especially true of this one, is we can't really grasp its meaning and understand what it has for us unless we see it in the context of the whole letter. And so I'd like to set some of that context before we dive into this passage. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to grab it. If you have one in front of you, open it up to 2 Peter, which is toward the end of the Bible, before the book of Revelation. We look at the books of 1 and 2 Peter. And if we look at verse... Verses 3 through 11, they're in the opening chapter. 1 Peter chapter 1. We didn't talk about this last week. We're going to circle back at the end of this series to this passage. What Peter says there, I just want to summarize verses 3 through 11 like this. He tells us, there is a way to live That is like a road, and and there it is on the slide. There's a way to live like a road that ends at the entry gate into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 11, he's talking about this way of life. In this way, on this road, we could translate that. Entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided for you. 
Now, if you look at chapter 2, you'll see that Peter continues to use this kind of language. He talks about the way of truth. He talks about, that's in verse 2, he talks about the straight path or the straight way in verse 15. And he talks about the way of righteousness in verse 21. This is the way of Jesus. And what Peter says about this in the opening chapter is he says the way of Jesus if you were just to summarize it quickly, is to make every effort to live in the way of love, to become a person of love. That's how he ends in verse 7. Make every effort to add these things to your faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. This is the way of Jesus. And then in chapter 2, he says, there is a way to live that is like a road that ends with permission. To live in the kingdom we've built for ourselves, where we are Lord and King, where the glory and goodness of God is pushed to where we've tried to push it all along, completely out of the picture. And in verse, or rather chapter 2, Peter is saying the the end point of this road is utter darkness. And he uses the language of destruction and darkness for that path. Peter's final message to the church in this letter, in chapter 2, is this. As we keep in mind these, these two, two ways, he's saying this. There is a great danger to the church he wrote to and to the church in any era of people in the church thinking they're on road number one, but in fact, they're on road number two because of false teaching. And he says, when this happens, those who don't believe in Jesus will look at Christianity and they will go, hmm, it's no different than anything else. He says the way of truth will be maligned when this happens. This is a great danger in any era of the church. And so also, this morning we'll consider how is it a danger now? How do we live in a dark place? Peter answers that question under three headings. One. Recognize false teaching. In studying this passage this week, I began to notice that Peter does not say what I initially thought he was saying in all this before I studied this. What I thought he was saying here is there are false teachers out there saying things that aren't true, aren't true about Jesus and Christianity. Expose them. You know, make YouTube videos about them. And get these teachers out of your churches and out of your lives. But if you look at this chapter, he never says that. Isn't that interesting? He never says, get them out, expose them, kick them out. He's saying, rather, hey, people in the church, us, <laughs> recognize and examine yourself to see what teaching you are really living by. 
Look at and look within yourselves. The assumption is that it gets in and it gets into churches and it gets in to Christians. And this is very challenging, but it's very necessary, Peter says, for every follower of Jesus to consider. In order for us to know which way, which road we're really living on, Peter says, you need to recognize the teaching you are really living by. And what he's saying here is this is not the teaching we say we believe, not the theology we profess with our mouths and minds or on paper. He's talking about the theology we profess with our life. And he's saying, recognize that. Look at verse 1 when Peter says, there will be false teachers among you, and they will bring in destructive heresies. And he goes on in verse 2 to say, many, many people in the church. He says, many among you will follow their depraved ways, and the way of truth will be maligned because of them. He's saying in, in Christian communities and churches among you, there will be false teachers teaching heresy. What is heresy? Heresy is just a word for like different, and what it means is something that says it's Christianity, but it's not. It's something entirely different. He's saying there's going to be teaching that says it's Christianity, but it's not. That says this is about Jesus, but it isn't. And what's being taught as we examine this text and see is what's being taught is a way of life, a way of living that is different than the way of Jesus. This heresy Peter is saying is a heresy of living, a practical, a moral heresy, which is not how we often think of heresy. So let me explain that. We often think of heresy like this. There's a false idea that somebody teaches. There's a false idea out there, and it convinces people, and when that false idea is believed, then it results in practical consequences in our lives. Right? We get convinced in our minds of an idea, and we're like, oh, that sounds good, and then we live out, and it affects our lives and our choices. Here, Peter is saying it actually works in the opposite direction. The false teaching and the heresy he describes here is not first a theological heresy, a false idea or belief. It's first a heresy of living, of a way of life. Look at verse 18. I'm going to be jumping around this, this chapter a lot. He says, they seduce with fleshly desires. And debauchery. In verse 19, he says, they, it promises freedom. In verse 13, offering pleasure to carouse, feasting, eyes full of adultery, hearts trained in greed. It seems pretty clear here. Peter's not talking about a heresy of an idea that originates in the mind. He's talking about a heresy of living that originates in the heart or in our desires. Someone teaches something about how we can live and says, you can live how you want. Or, Jesus will give you the life you want. Jesus will give you the things you want. And that gets our attention and it draws us in. And we say, hmm, I kind of like how that sounds. And it's, at the level of our heart and desires, we say, oh, I, I can live how I want. I can do what I want. 
that draws us in, and then we adapt our ideas, our theology, our belief around that. Said another way, what I'm trying to say is here, we end up eventually fitting our doctrine into the way that we want to live. Look at verse 3. Peter says, all this teaching... It's just based in made-up stories. It's the, you could translate it, plastic words. It's not really the teaching that draws you in. It's not the coherence and the cogency of the arguments or how persuasive it is or how rational the arguments are that's drawing people in. He's saying it's flimsy and plastic and it's moldable and changeable. He says they're seducing, they're drawing in with desire, fleshly desires, verse 18 again. And again in verse 19, the promise of a life of freedom at the level of human desire, maybe the deepest of human desires, the promise of freedom from authority. That's what Peter says is drawing people in and causing them to change their beliefs, and their theology. And this was the core heresy and the promise of this teaching. Look at verse 1 again. It says, they're teaching these things and denying the master who bought them. And again in verse 10, despising the authority of the Lord. Essentially saying, you can have the benefits of Jesus without being bought by Jesus. You keep ownership of your life and you take from Jesus what you want. If you come across a command, if you come across a teaching, if you come across something in the Bible that isn't a fit, that's uncomfortable for you, just change it to fit. It's okay. Now this was written in the first century a long time ago. But I can't think of anything that's more modern, more postmodern, more 2023 than this. This idea that you can believe in Jesus, you get his grace, you can get his forgiveness, you can get his mercy, but don't let anyone or anything take the place of authority in your life besides you. It's your heart, your desires, it's what you want that matters most. Be true to yourself. No constraints, no rules, no tradition, no authority, but you. It sounds so freeing. Who wants to live under authority if we can do what we want? What we see over and over and time and time again here in this chapter, actually in the whole letter, Peter says, it it can't work like that. It can't work like that with Jesus. No more um, or nowhere in Scripture is Jesus given the dual title more Lord and Savior than here in 2 Peter. Four times. Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior. Peter is saying, You can't say to Jesus, help me, save me, protect me, bless me, without also saying to Jesus, rule me, command me, reign over me. What Peter is saying here is, 
Jesus' salvation is his lordship. It's what he's saving you from. You being the Lord over your own life. He's saving you from road number two. The way of life that ends apart from God. He's saying that this is Christianity. Lord and Savior. They always go together. Anything else is heresy. It's a different teaching than the teaching of Jesus. So he's telling the church of all times, recognize the teaching you really live by. And one way to do this is to regularly ask ourselves, when was the last time that Jesus told me no? Or is he always telling me yes? He's saying recognize that. And then he's saying reject it. That's the second point. Here Peter surprises us again. He spends so much time on something that I would say in our modern church is a misused or often unused resource in the Bible. If I recognize it, Peter, how do I get it out of my life? He says, use the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second advent is a doctrine you need for everyday practical choices, for your way of life. Most of the passage is about this. Verse 19 of chapter one, he says, when the day dawns, in the second advent of Jesus Christ, when the day dawns, all false teaching will be seen for what it is and where it leads. Chapter two, verse nine, on the day of judgment, we will be accountable for the way of life we have lived. In a dark place, when life is hard, where it sometimes seems to us like God is not here, Often God seems very absent and removed from our lives and our choices. Maybe he's not listening to my prayers. We feel that. He's not meeting my desires with what he brings into my life. It seems like he's holding out on his promises. And as we suffer grief and loss and pain and feel the need, how do I deal with it all? I need to escape from all of this. Teaching that tells us, here's how you do you. Take care of your needs. You deserve it. Jesus wants you to have what you want. This teaching, when we're in that place and feeling that way, it can seem very attractive. It can seem very alluring to us. Yeah. He does want me to have what I want. I do deserve it. So in a dark place, Peter is saying the second coming of Jesus is like this. It's like that house in your neighborhood right now, probably every neighborhood has it, where there are a string of lights on the top section of the roof and the bottom section of the roof. And there are a thousand lights in the bushes and on the trees out front. And there's an inflatable snowman and reindeer full of lights. And when it hits five o'clock and it's dark outside, all of a sudden, it still seems like daylight in your neighborhood. And if you have that neighbor living right next to you or across from you, then you are bringing daylight into the, house of all those around, into the houses all around you. Maybe you are that person 
And that's awesome. Peter is saying, this is how the second coming works. It brings the light of truth, of reality to hearts and minds when we're in a dark place. How does this work? It goes like this. We make choices and sacrifices. We endure all kinds of things when we ask, who, do I, who will I be in one year from now? Like if it's your senior year of high school and you're like, in one year, I want to be in this college kind of a thing. Or if you are a senior year in college, right? one year I want to be working here. Who will I be in five years? Who will I be in 20 years? Who will I be on my last day on earth? When we think of that day, it changes the choices we make this day. Peter says, go beyond all that to who you will be on the day of judgment. When your entire life is brought into the light of the perfect judgment of God. We sometimes don't want to think about, about this a lot. Sometimes we don't hear about this a lot. But the Bible says a lot about this. Jesus says this a lot. He says, be alert, be ready, be thinking about this. The prophets of the Old Testament said this a lot. Paul, the apostle, was thinking about this all the time. Who will I be? What life will I offer to Jesus on that day? And the apostles, like Peter, were talking about that day, the day, the day. To them, it was the most important day in their future timeline so that they had one day on their calendar in life. The day I was born, for me, 12, 28, 76. And they said, the next important day in my future timeline is the day of the second coming of Jesus Christ when my life will be brought into his perfect light. The practical and ethical heresies that was tied to the doctrinal heresy. Now let me rephrase that. The practical, ethical heresies of saying you can be your own Lord, you can be your own authority, led to the doctrine of pushing out the second advent and saying, we don't need that. We don't want to think about that. We deny the second advent. Don't worry about that. Worry about now and today. So here in chapter 2, verses 4 through 22, just look at these, just look at it. <laughs> look at what's there. We can't go through all of it. But Peter's being very vivid. He's actually being very artful in the original language. It's very poetic. There are a lot of word plays here. And very passionately, Peter is bringing the judgment of God into the forefront here. It's mostly very intense for us to read this, very uncomfortable. And even for me, I confess, this is not what I enjoy talking about. It's uncomfortable. But here, Peter, the apostle, is, and God speaking through him says, here is what happens when you use the light of the second coming on your life. Peter shines that light in two main ways here. Look at verses 6 through 10. He's saying God has given us, in his word, precursors to final judgment in the biblical story, verses 6 through 10. He goes through three examples of this. Angels who sinned in verse 4. Verse 5, the entire ancient world was mired in violence and hate at the time of Noah. And God brought a precursor to final judgment. 
and in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we looked at a number of weeks ago in our Genesis series. These are precursors, the long-awaited answer, God's answer to the question, the problem, one of the main problems we have with God, the problem of evil. Peter says God's answer to that is coming. God will judge all sin, evil, and darkness and all its effects and consequences. It will be done away with forever, and he will set all things right. These stories assure us, in God's time, this is what is coming to who Peter describes as the ungodly. In other words, those who make themselves the gods and the lords of their own lives. So he he says these are the precursors. And the rest of this chapter, what I see him saying is, God not only gives you precursors, he gives you previews of final judgment, of God's final judgment in the human experience now. That will end up playing out to their fullest extent in the final judgment. This is where he uses his most vivid and striking language that we go, whoa, what is this? He's telling us though, look at this. He's telling us what we already know through experience about living like we are the Lord of our lives like we are the final authority over ourselves. He says, first, it's arrogant. Verses 10 and 11. It's arrogant to create our own moral standards, our own teaching for how we want to live, all centered around us, our desires, and what we want. And if we want more of it, greed, he says, go get it, <laughs> these, these false teachers say. We, we think, we, look, we look, hear that and go, that's arrogant to build an entire belief structure around myself. He says it's self-destructive. Has anyone here not done something where you say later, that was not really good for me, but I did it anyway. That brought harm to myself. That brought harm to others, but I did it anyway. The human experience is full of this kind of behavior. At its extremes, we call it addiction, but it's widespread. Pornography and alcohol and drugs and painkillers and food and more. We're we're talking about the human experience. Why are we bent on self-destruction? There's the self-destruction of war. What action of war does not bring more war? What action of destruction, when you bring that in another community, another country, does not bring more destruction to yourself? He says, these are destructive heresies because that is what they result in. In verse one, verse 12, this brings destruction on ourselves. It's arrogant, it's self-destructive, and it's empty. Verses 17 through 19. He says, there is teaching out there that is like springs without water. A spring without water, this is like a mirage. Oh, there's water there, it's gonna quench my thirst. And then when you get there, it's not there. Or he says, it's like a mist driven by a storm, like an empty mist that's driven away by the wind. As soon as you try to grasp it, nothing's there. The promise of freedom from all authority, he's telling us, is an empty promise. It leads only to being enslaved and defeated. 
I think what Peter is doing here, he's saying, you have these previews in your human experience now. And on the day of judgment, God will say to those who have arrogantly chosen a self-destructive, empty way of life, okay, you can have it. And that is the worst thing that we can hear. Peter says, is that who you want to be on that day? No? Then recognize and reject any teaching that molds and shapes you to become that kind of person. He says, recognize it, reject it. And thirdly, he says, be rescued from it. At this point, if you're taking this text seriously, you might be thinking, I think I might be in trouble here. And I want to say, if you're thinking that good, that's what I've been thinking all week. This is hard, but it's also very convicting. Is there any hope? Yes. Hope is found in the most unlikely of places, Peter is telling us here. In the most unlikely of people in this sobering passage. Would you look at verse 7 and who we find there? Peter says, let's talk about Lot. There are a number of people in the Bible that make it into the hall of fame or the hall of faith. And there are a number of people in the Bible that we'd say, they're definitely not there. They're more in like the hall of shame. Somebody would say, that's not somebody whose life I would want to emulate. So for his chapter, Peter chooses a hero. We'd say, this guy is like a zero or negative 10. If I was God inspiring the New Testament, of all the characters, I would have said, okay, he's in the Old Testament, but now we're in the New Testament. We're going to leave Lot out. It would be Lot. But Peter says Lot shows us our hope. We talked about his story a little bit in our series on Genesis. Lot was driven because of greed to live near these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Very close to compromise. And then at some point we're told he was not just near these cities, he moved into these cities, he put himself and his whole family right into the center of a way of life that was very dark and devoid of righteousness, as Genesis tells us. It was a dark place. And though Lot was there, Peter tells us he was tormented inside, look at verse 8, by what he saw and heard. What kind of torment? Was he saying, oh, holy Lord, I cannot even look upon the filth of this evil place that I see all around me. If we know Lot's story, we say, come on, that's not true. That's not true to his story. He was probably praying something more like this. Oh, Lord, I don't know how I got here. I feel the pull of living in the city according to their way of life. I want to do it but I know it's not good. I know it's not true. I know it's not the way that leads to life in you and I'm tormented. I want to choose right, but I can't. And I don't know the way out of this. But verse nine tells us, but the Lord knows how. The Lord knows how to rescue Despite Lot's choices, despite himself, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. 
There is hope in a dark place. When we're in a dark place and when we say, I don't know how, God, when I hear the teaching of Scripture, sometimes it feels like a burden and it's restrictive and there's things that I wish I could cancel and get out and edit out. It can feel like the way of Jesus, the way of love, like I'm giving up my freedom. When I hear teaching that says, you do you, and I see it all around me, in the narratives of the world, when I see it on my screen, wherever I look, it says, do what you want. Take anything out that you don't like. It sounds freeing. When the things that I hear, the things that I see, and I say, That's, that doesn't seem right. But I'm drawn in. I don't know how to handle it. I don't know how to choose what's right. I don't know how to choose the way of Jesus and the way of love. Peter says these are the trials. This is the trial that he's talking about. Like Lot, he says, the Lord knows how. The Lord Jesus, who is tried and tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. The Lord Jesus, who tells us to pray, lead us not into temptation, trials. Lead us out and deliver us from evil. Rescue us. It's the same word used here in verse 9, from evil. He says the Lord knows how to answer that prayer. The hardest parts of being in a dark place, of being torn between these two ways of life, maybe is saying, I don't know how to get out of it. I don't think this is the right way, but it feels like the right way. It's the way I want it to be. What do I do? I don't know how. Peter is telling us the Lord knows. The Lord knows how to deliver you. Just a final, final thoughts. I know there's a lot here in this text. I was reading a book by Larry Crabb, author, who wrote about Second Peter. This is what the whole book is about. I know how to rescue my children from their worst problem. That's what God is saying to us in 2 Peter. I know how to rescue my children from their worst problem. Which is what? What's my worst problem? Peter says, believing I will be more free, more joyful, more whole if I'm my own authority, if I'm my own Lord, if I'm my own master. And he says we can be rescued from that false teaching that promises freedom from authority only by teaching that promises freedom under a better authority than ourselves, the authority of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is why Peter is telling us, pay attention to the lamp shining in a dark place. Because there you'll find the truth about the authority of Jesus Christ and a better promise. Jesus, who is Lord, Master, and King, is the one who would go into the utter darkness, who would experience the full force of judgment, who would, even though he lived perfectly on road number one, the way of love, 
experience the consequence of living road number two. Darkness, separation, and judgment. That's why he came at Christmas. In order that he would show us a lamp. You are not made to be your own authority. Don't listen to any teaching that tells you that. But you were made to live and thrive under my authority. I'll take the judgment for you. I'll take the darkness for you to convince you to believe my promise. He says, 2 Peter 1, 4, by these he has given us very great and precious promises, better promises, so that through them we may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. He says, I want you to share in my divine nature, which is love. That's the lamp. That's a teaching that gives us a better promise. Let's pray. This is a hard passage, Lord, that you have given to us that forces us to ask hard questions. You have put it here for us because we know we need it. We are so prone to want to gravitate towards things that tell us we can be in charge that we can rule our lives better than you can rule our lives. And so, as this has been a sobering message and a sobering text, I pray you would bring it to our hearts in the way that you want it, in the way that we need to hear it, that we'd recognize the ways this is happening in our own hearts and minds, that we'd reject it and that we'd again place our lives in your hands, even when we don't know how and it feels very dark that we'd say, you know how, and that we would trust you and follow you. We pray all this in your powerful name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.